Isis Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of Eric, written by Terry Pratchett, read by Stephen Briggs. The bees of death are big and black. They buzz low and sombre. They keep their honey in combs of wax as white as altar candles. The honey is black as night, thick as sin, and sweet as treacle. It is well known that eight colours make up white, but there are also eight colours of darkness for those that have the seeing of them, and the hives of death are among the black grass in the black orchard under the black-blossomed ancient boughs of trees that will eventually produce apples that, put it like this, probably won't be red. The grass was short now. The scythe that had done the work leaned against the gnarled bowl of a pear tree. Now death was inspecting his bees, gently lifting the combs in his skeletal fingers. A few bees buzzed around him. Like all beekeepers, death wore a veil. It wasn't that he had anything to sting, but sometimes a bee would get inside his skull and buzz around and give him a headache. As he held a comb up to the grey light of his little world between the realities, there was the faintest of tremors. A hum went up from the hive, a leaf floated down. A wisp of wind blew for a moment through the orchard, and that was the most uncanny thing, because the air in the land of death is always warm and still. Death fancied that he heard, very briefly, the sound of running feet and a voice saying, no, a voice thinking, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Death is almost the oldest creature in the universe, with habits and modes of thought that mortal man cannot begin to understand. But because he was also a good beekeeper, he carefully replaced the comb in its rack and put the lid on the hive before reacting. He strode back through the dark garden to his cottage, removed the veil, carefully dislodged a few bees who had got lost in the depths of his cranium, and retired to his study. As he sat down at his desk, there was another rush of wind which rattled the hourglasses on the shelves and made the big pendulum clock in the hall pause ever so briefly in its interminable task of slicing time into manageable bits. Death sighed and focused his gaze. There is nowhere death will not go, no matter how distant and dangerous. In fact, the more dangerous it is, the more likely he is to be there already. Now he stared through the mists of time and space. Oh, he said, it's him. It was a hot afternoon in late summer in Ankh-Morpork, normally the most thriving, bustling and above all the most crowded city on the disc. Now the spears of the sun had achieved what innumerable invaders, several civil wars, and the curfew law had never achieved. It had pacified the place. Dogs lay panting in the scalding shade. The river Ankh, which never what you might call sparkled, oozed between its banks as if the heat had sucked all the spirit out of it. The streets were empty, oven-brick hot. No enemies had ever taken Ankh-Morpork. Well... Technically, they had quite often. The city welcomed free-spending barbarian invaders, but somehow the puzzled raiders always found, after a few days, that they didn't own their own horses anymore, and within a couple of months they were just another minority group with its own graffiti and food shops. But the heat had besieged the city and triumphed over the walls. It lay over the trembling streets like a shroud. Under the blow-lamp of the sun, assassins were too tired to kill. It turned thieves honest. In the ivy-covered fastness of Unseen University, Premier College of Wizardry, the inmates dozed with their pointy hats over their faces. Even blue bottles were too exhausted to bang against window panes. The city siestered, awaiting the sunset and the brief, hot, velvet surcease of the night. Only the librarian was cool. He was also swinging and hanging out. This was because... He'd rigged up a few ropes and rings in one of the sub-basements of the Unseen University Library, the one where they kept the, um, erotic books. Just erotic, nothing kinky. It's the difference between using a feather and using a chicken. 
in vats of crushed ice, and he was dreamily dangling in the chilly vapour above them. All books of magic have a life of their own. Some of the really energetic ones can't simply be chained to the bookshelves. They have to be nailed shut or kept between steel plates. Or, in the case of the volumes on tantric sex magic for the serious connoisseur, kept under very cold water to stop them bursting into flames and scorching their severely plain covers. The librarian swung gently back and forth above the seething vats, dozing peacefully. Then the footsteps came out of nowhere, raced across the floor with a noise that scraped the raw surface of the sole and disappeared through the wall. There was a faint, distant scream that sounded like, "'Oh, gods, oh, gods, oh, gods, this is it, I'm going to die!' The librarian woke up, lost his grip, and flopped into the few inches of tepid water that was all that stood between the joy of tantric sex with illustrations for the advanced student by a lady and spontaneous combustion. And it would have gone badly for him if the librarian had been a human being. Fortunately, he was currently an orangutan. With so much raw magic sloshing around in the library, it would be surprising if accidents did not happen sometimes, and one particularly impressive one had turned him into an ape. Not many people get the chance to leave the human race while still alive, and he'd strenuously resisted all efforts since to turn him back. Since he was the only librarian in the universe who could pick up books with his feet, the university hadn't pressed the point. It also meant that his idea of desirable female companionship now looked something like a sack of butter thrown through a roll of old inner tubes, and so he was lucky to get away with only mild burns, a headache, and some rather ambivalent feelings about cucumbers, which wore off by tea time. In the library above, the grimoire creaked and rustled their pages in astonishment as the invisible runner passed straight through the bookshelves and disappeared, or rather, disappeared even more. Ank Morpork gradually awoke from its slumber. Something invisible and yelling at the top of its voice was passing through every part of the city, dragging in its wake a trail of destruction. Wherever it went, things changed. A fortune-teller in the street of cunning artificers heard the footsteps run across her bedroom floor and found her crystal ball had turned into a little glass sphere with a cottage in it, plus snowflakes. In a quiet corner of the Mended Drum Tavern, where the adventuresses Herenna the Henna-haired Harridan, Red Sharon, and Diome, Witch of the Night, were meeting for some girl talk and a game of canasta, all the drinks turned into small yellow elephants. "'Some wizards up at the university!' said the barman, hastily replacing the glasses. It oughtn't to be a lad. Midnight dropped off the clock. The Council of Wizardry rubbed their eyes and stared blearily at one another. They felt it oughtn't to be allowed too, especially since they weren't the ones that were allowing it. Finally, the new Arch-Chancellor, Ezrolith Churn, suppressed a yawn, sat up straight in his chair and tried to look suitably magisterial. He knew he wasn't really Arch-Chancellor material. He hadn't really wanted the job. He was 98 and had achieved this worthwhile age by carefully not being any trouble or threats to anyone. He had hoped to spend his twilight years completing his seven-volume treatise on some little-known aspects of Kuian rain-making rituals, which were an ideal subject for academic study, in his opinion, since the rituals only ever worked in Ku and that particular continent had slipped into the ocean several thousand years ago. It took thirty years to subside. The inhabitants spent a lot of the time wading. It went down in history as the multiverse's most embarrassing continental catastrophe. The trouble was that in recent years the lifespan of arch-chancellors seemed to be a bit on the short side, and the natural ambition of all wizards for the job had given way to a curious self-effacing politeness. He'd come down one morning to find everyone calling him Sir, it had taken him days to find out why. His head ached. He felt it was several weeks past his bedtime, but he had to say something. Gentlemen, he began. Hook. Sorry, and ma hook. I mean, um, apes, of course. Hook. The Arch-Chancellor opened and shut his mouth in silence for a while, trying to reroute his train of thought. The librarian was, ex officio, a member of the College Council. No one had been able to find any rule about orangutans being barred, although they had surreptitiously looked very hard for one. "'It's a haunting,' he ventured. 
some sort of a ghost, maybe. Um, a bell, book, and candle job. The bursar sighed. We tried that, Arch-Chancellor. The Arch-Chancellor leaned towards him. Eh? he said. I said we tried that, Arch-Chancellor, said the bursar loudly, directing his voice at the old man's ear. After dinner, you remember? We used hump-tempers names of the ants and rang old Tom. Old Tom was the single cracked bronze bell in the university bell tower. The clapper dropped out shortly after it was cast, but the bell still told out some tremendously sonorous silences every hour. Did we indeed? The work did it? No, Arch-Chancellor, eh? Anyway, we've, we've never had any trouble with ghosts before, said the senior tutor. Wizards just don't haunt places. The Arch-Chancellor groped for a crumb of comfort. "'Perhaps it's just something natural,' he said. "'Possibly the rumblings of an underground spring. "'Earth movements, perhaps. "'Something in the drains. "'They can make very funny noises, you know, "'when the wind is in the right direction.' He sat back and beamed. The rest of the council exchanged glances. "'The drains don't sound like hurrying feet, Arch-Chancellor,' said the bursar wearily. "'Unless someone left a tap running,' said the senior tutor. The bursar scowled at him. He'd been in the tub when the invisible screaming thing had hurtled through his room. It was not an experience he wanted to repeat. The Arch-Chancellor nodded at him. "'That's settled, then,' he said, and fell asleep. The bursar watched him in silence. Then he pulled the old man's hat off and tucked it gently under his head. "'Well,' he said wearily, "'has anyone got any suggestions?' The librarian put his hand up. "'Hook!' he said. "'Yes, well done, good boy,' said the bursar breezily. "'Anyone else?' The orangutan glared at him as the other wizards shook their heads. "'It's a tremor in the texture of reality,' said the senior tutor. "'That's what it is. "'What shall we do about it, then?' "'Search me, unless we tried the old—' "'Oh, no,' said the bursar. "'Don't say it. Please, it's far too dangerous.' His words— were chopped off by a scream that began at the far end of the room and dopplered along the table, accompanied by the sound of many running feet. The wizards ducked in a scatter of overturned chairs. The candle flames were drawn into long, thin tongues of octarine light before being snuffed out. Then there was silence, the special kind that you get after a really unpleasant noise. And the bursar said, "'All right, I give in. We will try the rite of Ashk-Ente.' It is the most serious ritual eight wizards can undertake. It summons death, who naturally knows everything that is going on everywhere. And, of course, it's done with reluctance, because senior wizards are generally very old and would prefer not to do anything to draw death's attention in their direction. It took place at midnight in the university's great hall, in a welter of incense, candlesticks, runic inscriptions and magic circles, none of which was strictly necessary, but which made the wizards feel better. Magic flared, the chants were chanted, the invocations were truly invoked. The wizards stared into the magic octogram, which remained empty. After a while, the circle of robed figures began to mutter amongst themselves. We must have done something wrong. Hook. Maybe he's out. Or busy. Do you think we should give up and go back to bed? Who are we waiting for, exactly? The bursar turned slowly to the figure beside him. You could always tell a wizard's robe. It was bedecked with sequins, sigils, fur and lace, and there was usually a considerable amount of wizard inside it. This robe, however, was very black. The material looked as though it had been chosen for its hard-wearing qualities. So did its owner. He looked as though, if he wrote a diet book, it would be a bestseller. Death was watching the octogram with an expression of polite interest. Uh, said the bursar. Uh, the fact is, in fact, that uh, you should be on the inside. I'm so sorry. Death stalked in a dignified way into the centre of the room and watched the bursar expectantly. I hope we are not going to have any of this foul fiend business again, he said. I trust we're not interrupting any important enterprise, said the bursar politely. All my work is important said Death. Uh, naturally, said the bursar. To somebody. Uh, 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 the reason, oh, foul, uh, sir, that we have called you here is for the reason... 
It is Rincewind. What? The reason you summoned me. The answer is, it is Rincewind. But we haven't asked you the question yet. Nevertheless, the answer is, it is Rincewind. Look, what we want to know is, what's causing this outbreak of... Uh, oh. Death pointedly picked invisible particles off the edge of his scythe. The Arch-Chancellor cupped a gnarled hand over his ear. What did he say? Who's the fellow with the stick? It's death, Arch-Chancellor, said the bursar patiently. Eh? It's death, sir, you know. Tell him we don't want any, said the old wizard, waving his stick. The bursar sighed. We summoned him, Arch-Chancellor. Is it? What are we going to do that for? Bloody silly thing to do. The bursar gave death an embarrassed grin. He was on the point of asking him to excuse the Arch-Chancellor on account of his age, but realised that this would, in the circumstances, be a complete waste of breath. Are we, are we talking about the wizard, Rincewind? The one with the... The bursar gave a shudder. Horrible luggage on legs? But he got blown up when there was all that business with the sorcerer, didn't he? The bursar was referring obliquely to the difficult occasion when the university very nearly caused the end of the world, and would in fact have done so had it not been for a chain of events involving Rincewind, a magic carpet, and a half-brick in a sock. See sorcery. The whole affair was very embarrassing to wizards, as it always is to people who find out afterwards that they were on the wrong side all along, i.e. the one that lost. And it was remarkable how many of the university's senior staff were now adamant that at the time they'd been off sick, visiting their aunt, or doing research with the door locked while humming loudly and had had no idea of what was going on outside. There had been some desultory talk about putting up a statue to Rincewind, but by the curious alchemy that tends to apply in these sensitive issues, this quickly became a plaque, then a note in the role of honour, and finally a motion of censure for being improperly dressed. Into the dungeon dimensions, and now he is trying to get back home. Can he do that? There would need to be an unusual conjunction of circumstances. Reality would need to be weakened in certain unexpected ways. That, that isn't likely to happen, is it? said the bursar anxiously. People who have it on record that they were visiting their aunt for two months are always nervous about people turning up who may have mistakenly thought that they weren't, and, owing to some trick of the light, might have believed that they had seen them doing things that they couldn't have been doing owing to being at their aunt's. It would be a million to one chance, said Death. Exactly a million to one chance. Oh, said the bursar, intensely relieved. Oh dear, what a shame. He brightened up considerably. Of course, there's all the noise, but unfortunately I expect he won't survive for long. This could be the case, said Death blandly. I am sure, though, that you would not wish me to make a practice of issuing definitive statements in this field. No, 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 of course not, said the bursar hurriedly. Right, well, uh, many thanks. Poor chap. What a great pity. Still, can't be helped. Perhaps we should be philosophical about these things. Perhaps you should. And we had better not keep you, the bursar added politely. Thank you. Goodbye. Be seeing you. In fact, the noise stopped just before breakfast. The librarian was the only one unhappy about it. Rincewind had been his assistant and his friend, and was a good man when it came to peeling a banana. He had also been uniquely good at running away from things. He was not, the librarian considered, the type to be easily caught. There had probably been an unusual conjunction of circumstances. That was a far more likely explanation. There had been an unusual conjunction of circumstances. By exactly a million-to-one chance, there had been someone watching, studying, looking for the right tools for a special job. And here was Rincewind. It was almost too easy. So Rincewind opened his eyes. There was a ceiling above him. If it was the floor, then he was in trouble. So far, so good. He cautiously felt the surface he was lying on. It was grainy, woody, in fact, with the odd nail-hole, a human sort of surface. His ears picked up the crackle of a fire and a bubbling noise, source unknown. His nose, feeling that it was being left out of things, hastened to report a whiff of brimstone. Right, so where did that leave him? 
lying on a rough wooden floor in a firelit room with something that bubbled and gave off sulphurous smells. In his unreal, dreamy state, he felt quite pleased at this process of deduction. What else? Oh, yes. He opened his mouth and screamed and screamed and screamed. This made him feel slightly better. He lay there a bit longer. Through the tumbled heap of his memories came the recollections of mornings in bed when he was a little boy, desperately subdividing the passing time into smaller and smaller units to put off the terrible moment of getting up and having to face all the problems of life, such as, in this case, who he was, where he was, and why he was. "'What are you?' said a voice on the edge of his consciousness. "'I was coming to that,' muttered Rincewind. The room oscillated into focus as he pushed himself up on his elbows. "'I warn you,' said the voice, which seemed to be coming from a table, "'I am protected by many powerful amulets.' "'Oh, jolly good,' said Rincewind. "'I wish I was.' Details began to distill out of the blur. It was a long, low room, one end of which was entirely occupied by an enormous fireplace. A bench all down one wall contained a selection of glassware apparently created by a drunken glassblower with hiccups and inside its Byzantine coils coloured liquids seethed and bubbled. A skeleton hung from a hook in a relaxed fashion. On a perch beside it, someone had nailed a stuffed bird. Whatever sins it had committed in life, it hadn't deserved what the taxidermist had done to it. Rincewind's gaze then swept across the floor. It was obvious that it was the only sweeping the floor had had for some time. Only around him had space been cleared among the debris of broken glass and overturned retorts for... A magic circle. It looked an extremely thorough job. Whoever had chalked it was clearly very aware that its purpose was to divide the universe into two bits, the inside and the outside. A rincewind was, of course, inside. Ah, he said, feeling a familiar and almost comforting sense of helpless dread sweep over him. I adjure and conjure thee against all aggressive acts, O demon of the pit, said the voice from, Rincewind now realised, behind the table. Fine, fine, said Rincewind quickly. That's all right by me. Um, it isn't possible that there's been the teeniest little mistake here, could there? Avaunt. Right, said Rincewind. He looked around desperately. How? Don't you think you can lure me to my doom with thy lying tongue, O fiend of Shamharoth? said the table. I am learned in the ways of demons. Obey my every command, or I will return thee unto the boiling hell from which you came. Thou came, sorry, thou camest, in fact, and I really mean it. The figure stepped out. It was quite short, and most of it was hidden by a variety of charms, amulets and talismans, which, even if not effective against magic, would probably have protected it against a tolerably determined sword thrust. It wore glasses and had a hat with long side-pieces that gave it the air of a short-sighted spaniel. It held a sword in one shaking hand. It was so heavily etched with sigils that it was beginning to bend. "'Boiling hell, did you say?' said Rincewind weakly. "'Absolutely. Where the screams of anguish and the tortured torments—' "'Yes, yes, you've made your point,' said Rincewind. "'Only, you see, the thing is, in fact, that I'm not a demon.' "'So if you would just let me out?' "'I am not fooled by thy outer garb, demon,' said the figure. "'In a more normal voice it added, "'Anyway, demons always lie. Well known fact.' "'It is,' said Rincewind, clutching at this straw. "'In that case, then, I am a demon.' "'Aha! Condemned out of your own mouth!' "'Look, I don't have to put up with this,' said Rincewind. "'I don't know who you are or what's happening, but I'm going to have a drink, all right.' He went to walk out of the circle and went rigid with shock as sparks crackled up from the runic inscriptions and earthed themselves all over his body. Thou masent, uh, thou masent, thou masent, the conjurer of demons gave up. Look, you can't step over the circle until I release you, right? I mean, I don't want to be unpleasant. It's just that if I let you out of the circle, you will be able to resume your true shape. And a pretty awful shape it is too, I expect. Avaunt, he added, feeling that he wasn't keeping up the tone. "'All right, I'm a-vaunting, I'm a-vaunting,' said Rincewind, rubbing his elbow. "'But I'm still not a demon.' "'How come you answered the conjuration, then? "'I suppose you just happened to be passing through the paranatural dimensions, eh?' "'Something like that, I think. It's all a bit blurred. "'Pull the other one. It has got bells on.' "'The conjurer 
leaned his sword against a lectern on which a heavy book, dripping bookmarks, lay open. Then he did a mad little jig on the floor. It worked, he said. <laughs> he caught sight of Rincewind's horrified gaze and pulled himself together. He gave an embarrassed cough and stepped up to the lectern. I really am not, Rincewind began. I had this list here somewhere, said the figure. Let's see now. Oh, yes, I command you, thee, I mean, to, to, ah, uh, grant me three wishes, yes. I want mastery of the kingdoms of the world. I want to meet the most beautiful woman who has ever lived. And I want to live forever. He gave Rincewind an encouraging look. All that, said Rincewind. Yes. Oh, no problem, said Rincewind sarcastically. And then I get the rest of the day off, right? And I want a chest full of gold, too, just to be going on with. I can see you've got it all thought out. Yes. Avant. Right, right. Only, Rincewind thought hurriedly, he's quite mad, but mad with a sword in his hands, the only chance I've got is to argue him out of it on his own terms. Only, do you see, I'm not a very superior kind of demon, and I'm afraid those sort of errands are a bit out of my league, sorry. You can avaunt as much as you like, but they're just beyond me. The little figure peered over the top of its glasses. I see, he said testily. What could you manage then, do you think? Well, um, said Rincewind, I suppose I could go down to the shops and get you a packet of mints or something. There was a pause. You really can't do all those things? Sorry. Look, I'll tell you what, you just release me and I'll be sure to pass the word around when I get back to... Rincewind hesitated. Where the hell did demons live anyway? Demon City, he said hopefully. You mean pandemonium, said his captor suspiciously. Yes, that's right, that's what I meant. I'll tell everyone, next time you're in the real world, be sure and look up... Uh, what's your name? Thursley. Eric Thursley. Right. Demonologist. Midden Lane, Pseudopolis. Next door to the tannery, said Thursley, hopefully. Right you are. Don't you worry about it. Now, if you'll just let me out... Thursley's face fell. You're sure you really can't do it, he said, and Rincewind couldn't help noticing the edge of pleading in his voice. Even a small chest of gold would do. And, I mean, it needn't be the most beautiful one in the whole of history. Second most beautiful would do, or third. You can pick any one out of, you know, the top one hundred thousand. Whatever you've got in stock sort of thing. By the end of the sentence, his voice twanged with longing. Rincewind wanted to say, Look, what you should do is stop all this messing around with chemicals in dark rooms and have a shave, a haircut, a bath... Make that two baths. Buy yourself a new wardrobe and get out of an evening, and then... But he'd have to be honest, because even washed, shaved and soaked in body splash, Thursley wasn't going to win any prizes. And then you could have your face slapped by any woman of your choice. I mean, it wouldn't be much, but it would be body contact. Sorry, he said again. Thursley sighed. The kettle's on, he said. Would you like a cup of tea? Rincewind stepped forward into a crackle of psychic energy. Ah, said Thursley uncertainly, as the wizard sucked at his fingers. I'll tell you what, I'll put you under a conjuration of duress. There's no need, I assure you. No, it's best this way. It means you can move around. I had it all ready anyway, in case you could go and fetch, you know, her. Fine, said Rincewind. As the demonologist mumbled words from the book, he thought, feet door, stairs. What a great combination. It occurred to him that there was something about the demonologist that wasn't quite usual, but he couldn't put his finger on it. He looked pretty much like the demonologists Rincewind had known back in Ankh-Morpork, who were all bent and chemical-stained and had eyes with pupils like pinheads from all the chemical fumes. This one would have fitted in easily. It was just that there was something odd. To be honest, said Thursley, industriously mopping away part of the circle, you're my first demon. It's never worked before. What is your name? Rincewind. Thursley thought about this. It doesn't ring a bell, he said. There's a Rincewin in the demonology and a Winswin, but they've got more wings than you. You can step out now. I must say that that's a first-class materialisation. No one would think you were a fiend to look at you. Most demons, when they want to look human, materialise in the shape of nobles, kings and princes. This moth-eaten wizard look is very clever. You could have almost fooled me, 
"'It's a shame you can't do any of those things.' "'I can't see why you'd want to live forever,' said Rincewind, "'privately determining that the words moth-eaten would be paid for "'if ever he got the opportunity. "'Being young again, I can understand that.' "'Ha! Being young's not much fun,' said Thursley, "'and then clapped his hand over his mouth. "'Rincewind leaned forward. "'About fifty years. That was what was missing. "'That's a false beard,' he said. "'How old are you?' Eighty-seven, squeaked Thursley. "'I can see the hooks over your ears. Seventy-eight, honest, avaunt. "'You're a little boy.' "'Eric pulled himself up haughtily. "'I'm not,' he snapped. "'I'm nearly fourteen. Aha!' "'The boy waved the sword at Rincewind. "'It doesn't matter anyway,' he shouted. "'Demonologists can be any age. "'You're still my demon, and you have to do as I say.' "'Eric!' came a voice from somewhere below them. "'Eric's face went white. "'Yes, mother?' he shouted, his eyes fixed on Rincewind. His mouth shaped the words, "'Don't say anything, please.' "'What's all that noise up there?' "'Nothing, mother. Come down and wash your hands, dear. Your breakfast's ready.' "'Yes, mother.' He looked sheepishly at Rincewind. "'That's my mother,' he said. "'She's got a good pair of lungs, hasn't she?' said Rincewind. "'I'd... I'd better go, then,' said Eric. "'You'll have to stay up here, of course.' It dawned on him, but he was losing a certain amount of credibility at this point. He waved the sword again. "'Avaunt!' he said. "'I command you not to leave this room.' "'Right, sure,' said Rincewind, eyeing the windows. "'Promise? Otherwise you'll be sent back to the pit.' "'Oh, I don't want that,' said Rincewind. "'Off you trot. Don't worry about me.' "'I'm going to leave the sword and stuff here,' said Eric, removing most of his accoutrements to reveal a slim, dark-haired young man whose face would be a lot better when his acne cleared up. "'If you touch them, terrible things will befall.' "'Wouldn't dream of it,' said Rincewind. "'When he was left alone, he wandered over to the lectern and looked at the book. "'The title, in impressively flickering red letters, "'was the Maleficarum Sumpta Diabolicite Ocularis Singularum, "'the Book of Ultimate Control. "'He knew about it. "'There was a copy in the library somewhere, "'although wizards never bothered with it. "'This might seem odd.' "'because if there is one thing a wizard would trade his grandmother for, it is power. "'But it wasn't all that strange, "'because any wizard bright enough to survive for five minutes "'was also bright enough to realise that if there was any power in demonology, "'then it lay with the demons. "'Using it for your own purposes would be like trying to beat mice to death with a rattlesnake. "'Even wizards thought demonologists were odd. "'They tended to be surreptitious pale men "'who got up to complicated things in darkened rooms and had damp, weak handshakes.' It wasn't like good, clean magic. No self-respecting wizard would have any truck with the demonic regions whose inhabitants were as big a collection of ding-dongs as you'd find outside a large belfry. He inspected the skeleton closely, just in case. It didn't seem inclined to make a contribution to the situation. "'It belonged to his what's name, Grandfather,' said a cracked voice behind him. "'With an unusual bequest,' said Rincewind. "'Oh, not personally!' He got it in a shop somewhere. It's one of them wasp names, uh, articulate wasp names. It's not saying much right now, said Rincewind, and then went very quiet and thoughtful. Er, uh, he said, without moving his head. What precisely am I talking to? I'm a wasp name. Uh, tip me tongue. Begins with a P. Rincewind turned around slowly. You're a parrot, he said. That's it. Rincewind stared at the thing on the perch. It had one eye that glittered like a ruby. Most of the rest of it was pink and purple skin, studded with the fag ends of feathers, so that the net effect was of an oven-ready hairbrush. It jiggled arthritically on its perch, and then slowly lost its balance until it was hanging upside down. "'I thought you were stuffed,' said Rincewind. "'Up yours, wizard!' Rincewind ignored it and crept over to the window. It was small, but gave out onto a gently sloping roof." And out there was real life, real sky, real buildings. He reached out to open the shutters. A crackling current coursed up his arm and earthed itself in his cerebellum. He sat on the floor, sucking his fingers. "'He told you,' said the parrot, swinging backwards and forwards, upside down. "'But you wouldn't, what's name? He's got you by the what's names.' "'But it should only work on demons.' "'Ah!' said the parrot, achieving enough momentum to swing upright again, whereupon it steadied itself with the stubby remains of what once had been wings. "'It's all according, innit? If you come in through a door marked wasp names, that means you get treated as a wasp name, right? Demon, I mean. 
subject to all the rules and wash names. Tough one for you. But you know I'm a wizard, don't you? The parrot gave a squawk. I've seen him, mate. The real Mac wash name. Some of the ones we've had in here, they'd make you choke on your millet. Great, scaly, fiery wash names. Took weeks to get the soot off the walls, it added in an approving tone of voice. That was in his granddad's day, of course. The kid hasn't been any good at it up to now. Bright lad. I blame the wash names. Parents. New money, you know. Wine business. Spoil him rotten. Let him play with his wash names old stuff. Oh, he's such an intelligent lad. Knows always in a book, the parrot mimicked. They never give him any of the things a sensitively growing wash name really needs if you was to ask me. What, you mean love and guidance, said Rincewind. I was thinking of a bloody good wash name, thrashing, said the parrot. Rincewind clutched at his aching head. If this was what demons usually had to go through, no wonder they were all so annoyed. Polly want a biscuit, said the parrot vaguely, in much the same way as a human would say, er, or as I was saying, and went on, his granddad was keen on it, that and his pigeons. Pigeons, said Rincewind. Not that he was particularly successful. It was all a bit trial of wash name. I thought you said great big scaly. Oh, yes, but that wasn't what he was after. He was trying to conjure up a succubus. It should be impossible to leer when all you've got is a beak, but the parrot managed it. That's a female demon what comes in the night and makes mad, passionate wuss. I've heard of them, said Rincewind. Bloody dangerous things. The parrot put its head on one side. It never worked. All he ever got was a neuralgia. What's that? It's a demon that comes and has a headache at you. Demons have existed on the Discworld for at least as long as the gods, who in many ways they closely resemble. The difference is basically the same as that between terrorists and freedom fighters. Most of the demons occupy a spacious dimension close to reality, traditionally decorated in shades of flame and maintained at roasting point. This isn't actually necessary, but if there is one thing that your average demon is, it is a traditionalist. In the centre of the inferno, rising majestically from a lake of lava substitute and with unparalleled views of the eight circles, lies the city of Pandemonium. Demons and their hell are quite different from the dungeon dimensions, those endless parallel wastelands outside space and time. The sad, mad things in the dungeon dimensions have no understanding of the world, but simply crave light and shape and try to warm themselves by the fires of reality, clustering around it with about the same effect if they broke through as an ocean trying to warm itself around a candle. Whereas demons belong to the same space-time wasp name, more or less, as humans, and have a deep and abiding interest in humanity's day-to-day affairs. Interestingly enough, the gods of the disc have never bothered much about judging the souls of the dead, and so people only go to hell if that's where they believe, in their deepest heart, that they deserve to go, which they won't do if they don't know about it. This explains why it is important to shoot missionaries on sight. The City of Pandemonium. At the moment, it was living up to its name. Astfagal, the new king of the demons, was furious. Not simply because the air conditioning had broken down again, not because he felt surrounded by idiots and plotters on every side, and not even because no one could pronounce his name properly yet, but also because he had just been given bad news. The demon who had been chosen by lottery to deliver it cowered in front of his throne with its tail between its legs. It was immortally afraid that something wonderful was going to happen to it. Demons have a distorted sense of values. It did what? said Astavagal. It, uh, it opened, O oh Lord, the circle in Pseudopolis. Ah, the clever boy. We have great hopes of him. Uh, then it closed again, Lord. The demon shut its eyes. And who went through? Uh, the demon looked around at its colleagues, clustered at the far end of the mile-long throne room. I said, and who went through? In point of fact, O oh Lord. Yes. We don't know. Someone. I gave orders, did I not, that when the boy succeeded the Duke Vassanego was to materialise unto him and offer him forbidden pleasures and dark delights to bend him to our will. The king growled. The problem with being evil, he'd been forced to admit, was that demons were not great innovatory thinkers and really needed the spice of human ingenuity. And he'd really been looking forward to Eric Thursley, whose brand of superintelligent gormlessness was a rare delight. 
Hell needed horribly bright, self-centred people like Eric. They were much better at being nasty than demons could ever manage. Indeed, Lord, said the demon, and the Duke has been awaiting the summons there for years, shunning all other temptations, steadfastly and patiently studying the world of men. So where was he? Er, uh, call of supernature, Lord, the demon gabbled, hadn't turned his back for two minutes when... And someone went through. We're trying to find out. Lord Astafgal's patience, which in any case had the tensile strength of putty, snapped at this point. That just about summed it up. He had the kind of subjects who used the words find out when they meant ascertain. Damnation was too good for them. Get out, he whispered, and I shall see to it that you get a commendation for this. Oh, master, I plead, get out! The king stamped along the glowing corridors to his private apartments. His predecessors had favoured shaggy hind legs and hooves. Lord Astafagal had rejected all that sort of thing out of hand. He held that no one would ever get taken seriously by those stuck-up bastards in Dun Manifesting when their rear end kept ruminating all the time, and so he favoured a red silk cloak, crimson tights, a cowl with two rather sophisticated little horns on it, and a trident. The end kept dropping off the trident, but, he felt, it was the sort of get-up in which a demon king could be taken seriously. In the coolness of his chambers, oh, by all the gods, or rather, not by all the gods, it had taken him ages to get them up to some sort of civilised standard. His predecessors had been quite content just to lounge around and tempt people. They had never heard of executive stress. He gently lifted the cover of the mirror of souls and watched it flicker into life. Its cool, black surface was surrounded by an ornate frame from which curls of greasy smoke constantly unfolded and drifted. "'Your wish, master,' it said. "'Show me the events around the Sudopolis gate over the last hour,' said the king, and settled down to watch. After a while, he went and looked up the name Rincewind in the filing cabinet he had recently had installed in place of the distressingly bound old ledgers that had been there. The system still needed ironing out, though, because the bewildered demons filed everything under P for people. Then he sat watching the flickering pictures and absent-mindedly playing with the stuff on his desk to soothe his nerves. He had any amount of desk things, notepads with magnets for paper clips, handy devices for holding pens, and those tiny jotters that always come in handy, incredibly funny statuettes with slogans like You're the Boss, and little chromium balls and spirals operated by a sort of ersatz and short-lived perpetual motion. No one looking at that desk could have any doubt that they were, in cold fact, truly damned. I see, said Lord Astafagal, setting a selection of shiny balls swinging with one tap of a talon. He couldn't remember any demon called Rincewind. On the other hand, there were millions of the wretched things swarming all over the place with no sense of order, and he hadn't yet had time to carry out a proper census and retire the unnecessary ones. This one seemed to have fewer appendages and more vowels in its name than most, but it had to be a demon. Vasanego was a proud old fool, one of the elder demons who smiled and despised him and not quite obeyed him, just because the king had worked hard over the millennia to get from humble beginnings to where he was today. He wouldn't put it past the old devil to do this on purpose, just to spite him. Well, he'd have to see about that later. Send him a memo or something. Too late to do anything about it now. He'd have to take a personal interest. Eric Thursley was too good a prospect to pass up. Getting Eric Thursley would really annoy the gods. Gods! How he hated the gods! He hated the gods even more than he hated the old guard like Vasanego, even more than he hated humans. He'd thrown a little soiree last week. He'd put a lot of thought into it. He wanted to show that he was prepared to let bygones be bygones, work with them for a new, better and more efficient universe. He'd call it a getting-to-know-you party. There'd been sausages on sticks and everything. He'd done his best to make it nice. They hadn't even bothered to answer the invitations. And he'd made a special point of putting RSVP on them. Day one. Eric peered around the door. What shape are you? he said. 
Pretty poor shape, said Rincewind. I brought you some food. You do eat, do you? Rincewind tried some. It was a bowl of cereal, nuts and dried fruit. He didn't have a quarrel with any of that. It was just that somewhere in the preparation something had apparently been done to these innocent ingredients, what it takes a million gravities to do to a neutron star. If you died of eating this sort of thing, they wouldn't have to bury you. They would just need to drop you somewhere where the ground was soft. He managed to swallow it. It wasn't difficult. The trick would have been preventing it from heading downwards. <coughs> Lovely, he choked. The parrot did a splendid impersonation of someone being sick. I've decided to let you go, said Eric. It's pretty pointless keeping you, isn't it? Absolutely. You don't have any powers at all. Sorry, dead failure. You don't look too demonic, come to think of it, said Eric. They never do. You can't trust them, what's names, chortled the parrot. It lost its balance again. Polly want a biscuit, it said upside down. Rincewind spun round. You stay out of this, beaky. There was a sound behind them, like the universe clearing its throat. The chalk marks of the magic circle grew terribly bright for a moment, became fiery lines against the scuffed planks, and something dropped out of the empty air and landed heavily on the floor. It was a large, metal-bound chest. It had fallen on its curved lid. After a while it started to rock violently, then it extended hundreds of little pink legs and with considerable effort flipped itself over. Finally it shuffled around until it was watching the pair of them. It was all the more disconcerting because it was staring without having any eyes to do it with. Eric moved first. He grasped the homemade magic sword which flapped wildly. You are a demon, he said. I nearly believed you when you said you weren't. Wee, said the parrot. It's just my luggage, said Rincewind desperately. It's a sort of, well, it goes everywhere with me. There's nothing demonic about it. Um, he hesitated. Not much, anyway, he finished lamely. Avant! Oh, not again. The boy looked at the open book. My commands earlier resume, he said firmly. The most beautiful woman who has ever lived, mastery of all the kingdoms of the world, and to live forever. Get on with it. Rincewind stood frozen. Well, go on, said Eric. You're supposed to disappear in a puff of smoke. Listen, do you think I can just snap my fingers? Rincewind snapped his fingers. There was a puff of smoke. Rincewind gave his fingers a long, shocked stare, as one might regard a gun that had been hanging on the wall for decades and has suddenly gone off and perforated the cat. They've hardly ever done that before, he said. He looked down. Ah! he said, and closed his eyes. It was a better world in the darkness behind his eyelids. If he tapped his foot, he could persuade himself that he could feel the floor. He could know that he was really standing in the room, and that the urgent signals from all his other senses, which were telling him that he was suspended in the air some thousand miles or so above the disc, were just a bad dream he'd wake up from. He hastily cancelled that thought. If he was asleep... He'd prefer to stay that way. You could fly in dreams. If he woke up, it was a long way to fall. Perhaps I have died, and I really am a demon, he thought. It was an interesting point. He opened his eyes again. Wow, said Eric, his eyes gleaming. Can I have all of it? The boy was standing in the same position as he had been in the room. So was the luggage. So, to Rincewind's annoyance, was the parrot. It was perching in mid-air, looking speculatively at the cosmic panorama below. The disc might almost have been designed to be seen from space. It hadn't, Rincewind was damn sure, been designed to be lived on, but he had to admit it was impressive. The sun was about to rise on the far rim and made a line of fire that glittered around half the circumference. A long, slow dawn was just beginning its sweep across the dark, massive landscape. Below, harshly lit in the arid vacuum of space, great Atuin, the world turtle, toiled under the weight of creation. On his, or her, the matter had never really been resolved, carapace, the four giant elephants strained to support the disc itself. There might have been more efficient ways to build a world. You might start with a ball of molten iron and then coat it with successive layers of rock like an old-fashioned gobstopper, and you'd have a very efficient planet, but it wouldn't look so nice. Besides, things would drop off the bottom. Pretty good, said the parrot. Polly want a continent? It's so big, breathed Eric. Yes, said Rincewind flatly. He felt that something more was expected of him. Don't break it, he added. 
he had a nagging doubt about all this. If he was, for the sake of argument, a demon, and so many things had happened to him recently that he was prepared to concede that he might have died and not noticed it in the confusion. Rincewind had been told that death was just like going into another room. The difference is, when you shout, Where's my clean socks? No one answers. If he'd died and not noticed it in the confusion, then he still didn't quite see how the world was his to give away. He was pretty sure that it had owners who felt the same way. Also, he was sure that a demon had to get something in writing. I think you have to sign for it, he said, in blood. How's? said Eric. Yours, I think, said Rincewind. Or bird blood will do at a pinch, he glared meaningfully at the parrot, which growled at him. Aren't I allowed to try it out first? What? Well, supposing it doesn't work. I'm not signing for it until I've seen it work. Rincewind stared at the boy. Then he looked down at the broad panorama of the kingdoms of the world. I wonder if I was like him at his age, he thought. I wonder how I survived. It's the world, he said patiently. Of course it will bloody well work. I mean, look at it. Hurricanes, continental drift, rainfall cycle, it's all there, all ticking over like a bloody watch. It'll last you a lifetime, a world like that, used carefully. Eric gave the world a critical examination. He wore the expression of someone who knows that all the best gifts in life seem to require the psychic equivalent of two U2 batteries, and the shops won't be open until after the holidays. There's got to be tribute, he said flatly. You what? The kings of the world said Eric. They've got to pay me tribute. You've really been studying this, haven't you? said Rincewind sarcastically. Just tribute? You don't fancy the moon while we're up here? This week's special offer, one free satellite with every world dominated. Are there any useful minerals? What? Eric gave a sigh of long-suffering patience. Minerals, he said. Ores, you know. Rincewind coloured. I don't think a lad your age should be thinking of... I mean metal and things. It's no use to me if it's just a load of rock. Rincewind looked down. The Discworld's tiny moonlet was just rising over the far edge and shed a pale radiance across the jigsaw pattern of land and sea. Oh, I don't know. It looks quite nice, he volunteered. Look, it's dark now. Perhaps everyone can pay you tribute in the morning. I want some tribute now. I thought you might. Rincewind gave his fingers a careful examination. It wasn't as if he'd ever been particularly good at snapping them. He gave it another try. When he opened his eyes again, he was standing up to his ankles in mud.